Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Pie in the Sky Media. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the Murder Chronicles. I'm your host, Carolyn Osorio. You're listening to episode 50. What happened to Sherry Rasmussen? The Rasmussens were a very tight family. Nels and Loretta had three daughters. Connie is the oldest. Sherry was the middle. I am the baby. Connie is seven years older than I am. Sherry was four years. I'm the baby. (laughs) That's Teresa. She's the baby. You'll also be hearing from big sister Connie throughout this episode. I was born when my dad was in college. And then Sherry was also born when when my parents were in college, and then Teresa was born when they finished dental school. Connie, Sherry, and Teresa grew up in Arizona in the 1960s. Their dad was a dentist, and their mom was in charge of running the practice. Family was really close, did a lot of stuff together. We'd go camping, picnicking, just a lot of adventures. We went to Apache Lake in Arizona forever. I learned how to ski when I was three years old. My sisters would ski and they would sort of have a contest with the boys around the lake and my sisters would beat them. (laughs) I was too little to beat them, (laughs) but they could out ski all the boys at the lake. And so it was just, it was just good times. Teresa says that even though they grew up in the sixties, her dad was extremely progressive when it came to his girls. It was important to him that his daughters believed in themselves. My dad always wanted us to believe in ourselves as females, that we could achieve anything. It didn't matter if we were female or male, but females could do as good as males. So we have a strong will, all of us, to succeed and not be intimidated by politics or sexuality in the workplace. With his daughters, he wanted us to be self-sufficient and not have to rely on anybody but our own independence and be able to contribute to a relationship or whatever in our future. So when I was in high school, being um, self-confident was a little difficult with boys because they were like, they were better and whatnot, and I didn't believe that. (laughs) In a very tight-knit, loving family, Teresa says everyone had their unique qualities. And that Sherry, the middle child, was beloved and exceptional. She was the glue to our family. She made all our personalities that mesh. She was able to see everybody's point of view and help us see the other person's point of view so there wouldn't be conflict or anything like that. I guess the peacekeeper or something like that, I don't really think she had to keep the peace, but I mean, she was just the center of our family. 
The Rasmussen's girls had grown into successful, confident young women, and they all remained very close. At the age of 29, Sherry was the director of critical care at Glendale Adventist Medical Center. She was the type of nurse who never gave up on people. She had a young boy that had been in a dune buggy accident on life support and stuff, and they didn't know if he was going to make it. And my sister would come home and talk that he, she would sit and talk to him and try to make things better and give him hope, you know, because they say they always can hear. And you could see how much it affected her life and how she felt about things. And then I also lived with her when she was in going to her, getting her master's when she was working at UCLA. She would talk about doing CPR on a gentleman for I don't know how long, but she was so tired. And after that, that weekend, her muscles were so sore from keep continually trying to revive this guy. She always gave herself 100% to whatever she did. In June of 1984, Sherry met John Rutten, who was an engineer. And from the beginning, they were immediately drawn to each other. Friend had the party, but Sherry was there. And John saw Sherry across the room and thought, oh my gosh, she's just amazing. And went and talked to her, and that was, that they started dating that night. In May of 1985, they would become engaged. He adored her. My sister would dote over him as well. They were together, and I trusted my sister and with my own life, and I trusted her that she knew what she was doing and marrying this guy, and she loved him, and so that's all I needed to know. She loved him. He was part of the family. I loved him. But according to Connie, Sherry and Teresa's big sister, their parents were concerned about John. They didn't approve of John's engagement gift. A BMW was extravagant in their eyes. I think they liked John. There were things that were starting to red flags for my dad, like he bought the BMW for Sherry, but it was, you know, on time. So you had to make payments. And my dad was concerned about, you know, him spending so much money. And and Sherry has been, was very frugal. So that, you know, she manage her money so that she could buy the condo and those kind of things. And he, he was worried that this was might be a bad direction that John was taking them in. And there was the issue of another woman. Apparently, after their engagement, John's ex showed up at the hospital where Sherry worked and confronted her. It was very aggressive. She threatened Sherry. She told her that she and John had had sex after they were engaged. And she would say, if I can't have John then nobody else will. Confronted Sherry about her relationship with John and not wanting, uh, you know, Sherry, you know, interfering and, but, you know, making a lot of accusations and, you know, high, high volume voice and stuff, so. Distraught, Sherry came home from work that night and confronted John, who would ultimately confess to having sex with his ex after he and Sherry had become engaged. John promised then not to have any more contact with his former girlfriend. Sherry forgave him and the couple moved forward in their relationship, marrying in November of 1985. Even though some of Sherry's family members had reservations about John, they trusted Sherry implicitly. So when the couple were married, big sister Connie says she was happy for her sister. 
Jerry was loved being an aunt. She carried Rachel around most of the time during her wedding reception. And people thought maybe that was her baby. <laughs> but she was, she was really loved her new niece. So Well, and it sounds like, you know, um, she was able to just one glance at your sister say, you're pregnant, like before she even told her. Yeah. You know, like she was really keyed into people, it sounds like. She was compassionate, funny, intuitive, smart. She was just a beautiful person inside and out. She was very athletic. She always was the athletic one and always kind of got us all involved in doing sports. But the issue of John's ex after the marriage persisted. The woman wouldn't accept that John had moved on. I had feelings for John because she'd come to her work. Um, she had come by their, their condo to have, uh, you know, John put wax on her snow skis and was making in a, inappropriate, you know, visits to their, in their, you know, their environment. Sometime in January 1986, Sherry would confide to her father that she believed John's ex was stalking her. She was worried. But she asked her father to let her handle it. Dad took seriously his responsibility of providing and protecting his family. And, you know, even though he and Sherry had talked about it, she asked him to let her handle it. And he respected her, you know, her request. And I think he, you know, he felt uh, responsible for not, you know, stepping in. For a father who had raised such strong, capable women, he was conflicted, but he honored his daughter's request. But oh, how he would come to regret that. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On February 23, 1986, Teresa was so excited to hang out with her sister and her new husband, John. At the time, she was six months pregnant. Sherry was lived in um, San Fernando Valley. I was in Loma Linda. My husband was going to dental school. And so we would see each other quite often, I feel, talk to each other all the time. And we went down there because my husband wanted to go to a saltwater fish store in San Fernando Valley. We went down there and Sherry had gotten her new car from John. And uh, so we took it for a drive and went down to the fish store. The following morning, on February 24th, John got up and left for work at around 7.20. Meanwhile, Sherry called in sick. She wasn't feeling well. Teresa called Sherry at around 10 a.m. that morning, but she didn't pick up. I called her work, and um, her secretary said that she had stayed home and she was sick. And I said, okay, I'll call her at home. So I called her at home, and there was no answer. I didn't think anything of it, that she didn't answer the phone. I left a message. That morning, one of their condo neighbors would notice at around 9.45 that Sherry and John's garage door was open and that both of their vehicles were gone. 
later that day before I went home from work, I called my mother and asked my mom if she had talked to Sherry because she always called home or, I mean, we were all in contact with each other quite a bit. Um, I called mom and asked her if she'd heard from Sherry and she said no. And I went, oh, okay. I tried to call her too and started to put it out of my mind, you know, she's a grown girl and busy, (laughs) so I didn't think much of it. That evening, it was around six o'clock when John pulled up. He was surprised when he saw that the garage door was wide open, that Sherry's BMW was gone. He noticed broken glass on the driveway. It appeared to be from a shattered sliding glass patio door. He went through the garage, through the door that led into the condo, and saw that it was open, too, which was upsetting because he had closed and locked it when he had left that morning. When John walked inside, he saw Sherry lying on the living room floor. She was still dressed in the shirt she'd slept in the night before and was wearing a robe, but she was dead. Sherry's cause of death was three gunshot wounds to the chest. Investigators would also find two bullet holes in the curtains covering the shattered sliding glass door, which indicated that two additional bullets had been fired, strong evidence that the killer had gotten inside without forcing entry. Sherry hadn't just been shot to death three times. She'd also been brutally beaten. She had abrasions running up and down her arms. And near her wrists, there were injuries which were consistent with being tied with a rope or a cord. It was clear that Sherry had put up quite a fight. She had multiple contusions, an injury to her face which was consistent with being pistol whipped with the muzzle of a gun. The size and configuration of that gun matched a 38 caliber Smith & Wesson. There was also a blow to her head that matched a broken vase near her body. Sherry had lacerations and abrasions on her hands, mouth, face, head, and neck. Crime scene investigators would find two broken pieces of Sherry's fingernails by the front door. They would also find a white cord with bloodstains that matched Sherry's. On Sherry's left inner forearm, there was a bite mark. The pathologist would examine the bite mark under a microscope and determine that it had been inflicted at or about the time of Sherry's death. They also collected a quilt found near Sherry's body. It's believed that whoever had murdered Sherry had wrapped the quilt around the muzzle of the gun, using the blanket as a makeshift silencer. Samples were taken from the bite mark on Sherry's arm. The broken fingernails were collected, as well as clippings from other fingernails In the living room, stereo equipment had been taken from the cabinet and was stacked by the door to the garage. A drawer in the living room had been yanked out and its contents were dumped on the floor. But the other rooms had been left undisturbed. Reading the crime scene, investigators wondered if Sherry had been the victim of a burglary gone wrong. As they interpreted the crime scene, a theory began to coalesce. That two thieves had come through an open door. There was no sign of forced entry. The burglars believed that no one was home, so they began collecting stereo equipment in the living room and rifling through drawers for valuables. But they didn't realize that Sherry had stayed homesick from work. And so when Sherry heard the noise from the bedroom, she walked in on the burglary happening in the living room. They theorized that the burglars tried to subdue Sherry, but at some point there was a struggle and they shot Sherry. But there was a problem with this theory. There was no evidence of forced entry, and though the stereo equipment appeared to be stacked and ready to be taken, the only thing that was actually stolen was Sherry's BMW and Sherry and John's marriage certificate. The marriage license and the car. 
There was nothing else that was stolen. No, the house was just staged. You know, things were moved around, but nothing, none of her jewelry, you know, she didn't have a lot of expensive jewelry. It was more costume jewelry, but nothing was, but she had TVs and stereos and the typical things that you'd have in a house and and, uh, none of that was taken. Connie says that she called Sherry that night, having no idea that her sister had been murdered and that Sherry and John's condo was now a crime scene. I had called her from work, and then I had also called her that evening. And apparently one of the detectives or police officers answered the phone. I thought, I knew it wasn't John's voice I was talking to. And I, oh, I said, oh, I must have dialed the wrong number. You know, and then I had to take care of my daughter, who was had an ear infection at the time, and didn't call back. It wasn't until after midnight that she was made aware that her sister had been murdered. You get a call from your parents. I mean, what what did that yeah, do to my, you? Well, I was I was in shock. At first, I thought my dad was just. I said, "Dad is a bad joke." And he goes, "It's no joke." And then I just, you know, started screaming and crying. And he sternly told me to pull it together. And uh, so I pulled it together, and I said, "Okay, well, I'll call the make arrangements to fly down to L.A." Sherry's other sister, Teresa. Remember, she's the one that lived in California. Says she got a phone call in the middle of the night from her father, too. In the middle of the night, my dad called and uh, said that Sherry had been killed. And I sat up in the bed and screamed. And I handed the phone to my husband. And he goes, what's wrong? What's wrong? And I couldn't say anything. (laughs) So then my husband took the phone. And then my dad told my husband. And um, I guess we must have chatted a little bit of what was going to happen the next day or if they called me back later. I'm not quite sure. It's sort of a blur. Teresa would meet her parents, sister Connie, and her six-month-old at the airport. And here's where family dynamics come into play. Remember, Teresa, she lived in California and had come to love John because she spent time with, with him and Sherry. I loved John. He was fantastic. He loved Sherry to death. I have, I have no qualms with John. I actually talked to him last week. Last week. Whereas Connie says that she and her parents hadn't had a lot of interaction with John because they didn't live nearby. After Sherry's murder, they wanted answers. And Connie says her parents didn't feel like John was being as forthcoming as he could be. His actions did not reflect what I would expect of a husband that loved his wife. And so he really sold my sister short, in my opinion. You know, when Sherry, when he found Sherry, it was... Around 5.30, 6 o'clock, my parents didn't hear about it till like 11.30 or 11.30 close to midnight because they, they didn't want my parents to be showing up, you know, too soon. Why would he want to keep that from he, them? Because he wanted, he, well, he called his parents right away so his dad was up there to protect him. He implied that my, my dad, you know, was, might be uh, confrontational. So they didn't, he... He set my parents up for not not being able to get there until the next day. Of course, John was interviewed right away by police. And they would interview him into the next day. He was given a polygraph and he passed. But at some point in those interviews, he would tell detectives about his ex-girlfriend and that she was an LAPD officer. But according to Connie, John never told her parents the name of the ex. It's unclear if John's ex was ever interviewed by police. I reached out to the LAPD to get a clarification on this point, but haven't received a response to my interview request. Ultimately, John would be cleared as a suspect. The working theory by those investigators 
was that Sherry was a victim of a burglary gone wrong. I think my dad had always thought that there was something else involved in just a random thing. He had just seen her, I think, what, Valentine's Day? And I think she died on the 20-something. I forget exactly the day. But um, so I think that that was pretty clear in dad's mind at that point. So he didn't think it was a random act. Especially after they had access to Sherry's condo. They thought it looked staged. Of course they were suspicious. Sherry had confided to her father that she was being followed. Stalked. Sherry's father shared with police his suspicions that the former girlfriend of their daughter's husband, whose name they didn't know, had murdered Sherry. But their concerns appeared to fall on deaf ears. Detectives held fast with their theory that Sherry's killers were two unknown male Hispanics who were suspected of several burglaries in the area. A few days after Sherry's murder, two men described as Hispanic between 5'4 and 5'6 had robbed a woman in the neighborhood at gunpoint. Then, a few months after her murder, men with this description robbed another woman at gunpoint after she walked into a break-in while it was happening. Her house was just a few blocks from Sherry's, which put these men in the frame as the primary suspects in Sherry's murder. My sense and every time that I've had inter- interaction with the detectives early on was they were fixated on that it was a uh, robbery. And even though we asked them several times to to explore it, investigate it, did not uh, concur. They said, you know, that they just kind of blew us off. Sherry's family was beyond upset, especially after they got a copy of Sherry's autopsy report. They believed in their hearts there was no way this was a robbery gone wrong. The crimes against Sherry, the beating she endured, was up close and personal. Making arrangements for her funeral, we couldn't even go into her house to get something to bury her in. We had to go and buy something new. And they told my parents that she was so beat up uh, that, you know, not to see her. So we had to have a closed casket funeral. I was very adamant in believing that it was this this policewoman who he didn't know what well, her name. Th- right i think you know I, uh sherry and john had been over to see my parents and sherry had talked to my dad and so that's that's why my dad kept asking me if they had talked to the police officer and they would say no it's she's she's not involved or whatever and because that was the only thing that he knew that was a possibility, other, other, otherwise than being somebody random that came in. And But the thing of it is, is the more we heard the details of what, uh, you know, my dad got a hold of the autopsy, which they were not happy about, but my, we got the uh, copy of the autopsy. And that was, I think we got that in the first couple of weeks after we were back home. Who wasn't um, happy about that? The LAPD. Why were they not happy about that? I, I don't know. I'm assuming that we just maybe that we were getting too much information and then asking more questions and it was and questions they didn't want to answer. I don't know. But how did they express they, that they weren't? Do you recall or did your dad tell you how they, they expressed? They, they said, "Well, how did you get that?" <laughs> like it's a you know a secret. Ten days after Sherry's murder, her BMW was recovered two and a half miles from her home. The keys were in the ignition. It wasn't stripped or damaged. Sherry was very tall, and the car seat or the seat was 
way forward. So it was a shorter person that drove the car out of my sister's garage. Remember, the alleged suspects had been described as being between 5'4 and 5'6, which was circumstantial evidence to support investigators' theory that Sherry's murder was a burglary gone wrong. A year after Sherry was killed, we held a press conference and my dad offered it a reward and everything. And, and then the detectives came up with this sketches that they thought it was burglars and so on and so on. And so nothing really came out about that. My dad wrote the chief of police. I forget what his name was back then. A real famous guy, but anyway, can't think of it. Daryl Gates? Yeah, him. He wrote Daryl Gates about my sister's death and kept a copy of the letter. And Gates said he never got it. So, I mean, I don't know. The police department wasn't very helpful. As the years rolled on, the family never stopped trying to get investigators to listen to them. But they felt rebuffed in every effort to have them investigate the ex-girlfriend. According to the family, their concerns were dismissed. The detectives would tell Sherry's father to stop watching so much TV. My dad would be working and he'd say, call the detectives. And my mom would place the call. So she, they didn't do anything without one another. Now, when we talked about that, it was such a, you know, sometimes it's the simplest details that can really say everything. And when you said, you described that your mom had weathered that card because she'd handled it so many oh. times. Yeah, well, the, the it, it was frayed. It was, you know, business cards are pretty sturdy. But that paper was just, uh, it was soft. It was no longer hard. The edges were rounded. And the, the lettering was starting to rub off because it had been handled so many times. And when I talked to your sister, she got really emotional about the part where, I mean, many parts, but like your dad was never the same in the sense that he, she felt that he had failed to protect his daughter. Yeah, I, I, that was a burden that he carried for, you know, for his life. And I think that this whole incident, it took, took a certain both of my parents' lives. Um, the amount of stress that they both carried as a result of the Cherry's murder. By 1998, the family had all but given up hope that, that Cherry's murder would ever be solved. But in December 2004, members of the LAPD's cold case unit reopened Sherry's case. But by then, a lot of the physical evidence was gone. The only evidence that, was, that wasn't lost was the bite mark. Everything else in the, the whole box of, of evidence was lost. Remember, Sherry had been bitten by her murderer. Swabs had been taken from that bite mark. And a pathologist had looked at the evidence under a microscope, which meant the slides could still be at the coroner's office. Investigators made a request to the coroner's office, hoping to find the bite mark tissue sample. The request wasn't in vain. The sample had been in a freezer in the coroner's evidence room since 1986. Back then, DNA was in its infancy. In 2005, a criminalist would examine a piece of one of the swabs under a microscope and perform DNA testing on it. Two profiles were revealed, a major one and a minor one. The minor profile was believed to belong to Sherry, although there wasn't enough to get a complete match. The major one, however, was complete. 
And although they didn't know who it was based on the profile, they knew it was female. The killer was a woman, and quite possibly, the robbery had been staged all along. They would upload the DNA profile into CODIS, but there wasn't a match. In 2009, investigators started looking into specific women who might have had a reason to murder Sherry. They went back to John, Sherry's former husband. They had re-interviewed John so many years later. Uh Uh-huh. And that's maybe when her name got brought up again, the ex. Yeah. Because that's when they found out that the DNA was female, and so it totally discredited the two Hispanic men who were believed to be the burglars in a burglary gone wrong. Correct. Right? Yes. Teresa says that she got a call from her parents saying that the police wanted her to give a DNA sample for elimination purposes. A week later, she was contacted by the police again. And they said they're going to be making an arrest soon. And so my dad was trying to get them to tell him who and get more information on what they had evidence-wise and whatnot since they were going to be making the arrest. But they wouldn't tell him anything until the arrest was actually complete. John's ex-girlfriend's name was Stephanie Lazarus. And now, with all the other women in Sherry's life eliminated, Lazarus was their number one suspect. It had been 23 years since Sherry was brutally murdered. By 2009, Stephanie Lazarus had gone on to have a successful career in law enforcement. She was a 25-year veteran of the Los Angeles Police Department, highly decorated and well-respected. She was a detective who worked high-end art thefts in L.A., a very high-profile position. Unbeknownst to Detective Lazarus, cold case detective John Nettle had been assigned to the case, and when the unit realized a fellow officer was a suspect, they had to be very careful investigating one of their own. Did they get a surreptitious sample from her? They did. They followed her uh, for and picked up a soda cup that she had disposed of when she was at Costco. Wow, they didn't even do it at work. No. They really wanted to keep this uh... low profile. Stephanie Lazarus's DNA was a match for the bite mark. They would also find her DNA under Sherry's fingernail. It was time to interview Stephanie. But investigators realized it was a very delicate situation they were presented with. They knew they had to be careful when they talked to Stephanie. Number one, officers carry guns on them, even if they're at their desks at the station. So they concocted a ruse to get her into an interrogation room, because that way they could disarm her of her service weapon. The detectives explained to Stephanie that they needed her expertise on an art theft investigation. They asked her if she would join them in an actual interrogation room. In this way, they got her away from her gun, and they were also able to record the interview at the station on June 5th, 2009. We've been assigned a case that we've been looking at. Okay. okay. It's a new case, and as we're reviewing the case, there's some notes uh, to see uh, as far as your name being mentioned. Do oh, you, okay. Do you know John Rudin? When asked about John, Stephanie would repeat his name twice, as if trying to recall who he was. And they purposely referred to him as John Rutten when they knew all along that his name was John Rutten. John Rutten. John Rutten? Rutten. Rutten. Oh, yeah, I went to school with him. You did? Yeah. How long did you know him? Gosh, I went to school in, um, let's see, went to UCLA in 1978. I started and, um, you know, met him at school at the dorms. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Were you guys friends, close friends? Yeah, we're very close friends. I mean, yeah. I mean, what's this all about? Well, it's regarding, it's a case we're working on and it involves John and in there, some of the statements we, we reviewed, uh, you know, there's notes and stuff that he, that he knew you and stuff. Oh yeah, I mean, we good friends, um, lived in the dorms for, I lived in the dorms for two years. Um, you guys lived in the same dorm? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Dijkstra. Okay. Were you guys just friends or anything else or? Yeah, we were, we were good friends. Yeah. Was there ever any relationship or anything that developed between you guys? Yeah, I mean, we dated, uh, uh -huh. you know, um, I mean, is, what's this all about? Well, it's relating to uh, his wife. Okay. Okay. Did you know her? Not really. I mean, I knew that he got married years ago. Uh-uh. Did you ever meet her? God, I don't know. Um, you know who she was or anything? Well, I... Let me think. God, it's been a long time ago. Mm -hmm. um, um, I, I may have met her. Jeez. Um, the interview was something that they had spent a lot of time preparing for. At first, she's like, oh, yeah, I went to school with him. Then she tries to distance herself from him, act like he was just a close friend, even though they had dated in college and probably after. She was clearly evasive. And let me ask you, you said you, you dated John. How long did you guys date? I mean, well, are you guys, is this something... I mean, you said I was going to interview somebody about art and how well, you guys are. Here's, here's, I mean, Stephanie, here's the situation. It's basically, we, you know, we knew that this when we saw this in the in in this chrono that maybe you know there was some relationship there. That's what the chrono seemed to indicate, and we didn't want to come up to you at your desk and ask those kinds of questions or do anything. You know how up there people can see what's going on if you go into an interview room or people are in there getting oh, supplies. Okay. I mean, so we we wanted to afford you some privacy, some confidentiality okay. to talk about this because we thought it might be, you know, something, you know, you're married to someone else, obviously, and so forth, and that you may not want to, you know, talk about these things in that setting where someone, you know, we don't want the rumor mill or gossip or any of that kind of stuff yeah, to start. that's fine. I mean... So we, we, we did this just as, as a means to try and speak to you in okay, just a confidential I mean, just, place where you, you know, where where your business isn't out there for other people and, you well, know, I mean, your division yeah, to know about. I mean, you know, God, that's been a million years ago. I mean, you know... Um, what year is it now? 2009? I mean, I graduated in 82. 82, yeah. Um, you know, we dated. Um, I dated other guys. I'm sure he dated other girls. Um, well, let me ask you, <laughs> roughly, how long would you, would you say you guys dated? Jeez. Oh, um, I couldn't even say. I mean... Just between you and John. You know, I don't... It was kind of a weird relationship. I mean, we 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 dated. Um, I can't say that he was my boyfriend. I don't know that he would consider me his girlfriend. Um, we just we dated. We did things. I played sports in college. He played basketball. His brother played basketball. Um, it, it, we just, you know, it just didn't work out. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. It was like I went out with other guys, um, saw other guys, and went on lots of vacations. Um, you know, and, and once you guys split, were you guys still friends or kind of, uh, you know, I mean, is it friendly, not friendly? No, I don't think it was not friendly. I mean, we were friendly. Um, did you ever met his wife? I may have. Do you know, do you remember her name or anything or, um, um, or what she did for a living, or where she worked, or anything uh, about her? Well, I think she, I, I'm going to say that I think she was a nurse. 
and I can't remember how he, he said he met her. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, it's been so long ago. Well, let me ask you: Did you go to their wedding? You know? No, I didn't go to their wedding. Um, no, I don't. Did not go to their wedding. Um, I can't even tell you what year he got married. I mean, you know, it's it's been a million years ago. You know, again, I, I mean, what? You know, I, I don't understand why you're talking about some guy I dated a million years ago. Well, do you know what happened to his wife? Yeah, I know she got killed. When they asked Stephanie about Sherry's murder. She would say she found out about it by seeing a poster around the station when she was on patrol. She also said she'd spoken with John about it. Detectives did what they could at that time on the crime scene, okay? And the burglary thing you're talking about, that is an angle that they looked at. Angle, but now we're looking at everything else on the case because nobody was ever arrested on the case. I, I don't know that or not. Okay. Now, what we'd like to do is, obviously you know about all the DNA stuff and things of the nature that, you know, gets done on cases nowadays. You know, if we asked you for a, a DNA swab, would you be willing to give us one? Maybe. Because <laughs> now, 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 yeah, because now, now I'm thinking I probably need to talk to a lawyer. Okay. I mean, because well, I, I know how this stuff works, okay? Don't get me wrong. You're right. I have been doing this a long time. Yeah. And, I, and I wish I had been recording this because, because now it sounds like, you know, there's you know, you're selling these people, say I'm fighting with her, and now it sounds like you're trying to, you know, I've been doing this a long time. Yeah, we know. Okay, and it, and now it almost sounds like you're trying to pin something on me. No, now no. I, I got that sense. Well, what it gets to on these on these cases, and you know it as well as I do, our job is to identify and eliminate something. I can't believe this. So if we ask you to the point to give us a DNA sample, a buccal swab, so we can identify or eliminate you, would you be willing to do that? Maybe. Because I know this, I, I, I... I well, that's where we're at, too. I mean, because right now, from looking at the evidence, it's, you know, it's possible we may have some DNA at the location. That's great. And we're going to do what we can to try to put this thing together. And your name's in the book. These people are pointing at you for whatever reason. <laughs> I don't know why. And, that's just crazy. I mean, that's just, that's absolutely crazy. And... It would be irresponsible on our part not to look at it. I know. You guys have to do your job, and, and I guess I'm going to have to contact somebody. So That's fair. I mean, because I, I know how this stuff works. Sure. I mean, I, 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 I just can't believe it. That's, I, I mean, we, we understand that. I mean, if we were in your position, I mean, we would feel the same way. I just can't even believe it. I mean, it's just, I, I mean, I'm shocked. I'm really shocked. That somebody would be blamed, saying that I did this. I mean, we had a fight, and so I went and killed her. I mean, come on. On December 18, 2009, Stephanie Lazarus was charged with the first-degree murder of Sherry Rasmussen. She would plead not guilty. Connie says the arrest was a long time coming. So we kind of knew that they were going to make an arrest, so we were all huddled over at my mom's waiting for the call. And then when they called us and told us, you know, obviously we cried, <clears throat> but I was happy for my dad, you know, that he's finally getting uh, verification that he was right from the very beginning. During the trial, it was revealed that John Rutten and Stephanie Lazarus met in college in the late 70s. They casually dated. After graduation between 1981 and 1984, they continued to date and were sexually intimate. But John would never consider Stephanie his girlfriend. Stephanie attended the police academy in 1983 and graduated in 1984. 
An officer who attended the academy with Stephanie would later describe her as, quote, the strongest, most aggressive, most persistent fighter of the women in the class. In 1986, Stephanie Lazarus was an LAPD police officer. A fellow officer who was also her friend and former roommate would describe her fitness level as outstanding. As far as strength, he would say that when compared to other women, she was superior and that she was an expert level shooter. He would also recall that sometime in 1985 through 1987, Stephanie had shown her friend and another police officer that she had lockpicking tools and she knew how to use them. In June of 1984, while still casually dating Stephanie, John had met Sherry, and in May of 1985, they became engaged. Apparently, when Stephanie found out that John and Sherry were engaged to be married, she called him, desperate. She begged him to come over to her place, which he did. And when he arrived, Stephanie was beside herself. In between tears, she told him that she was in love with him, asking him repeatedly to have sex with her, which he did. However, the sexual encounter they shared didn't change John's relationship status with Sherry. They were engaged to be married, and several weeks later, he moved into Sherry's condo. Sometime after this, Stephanie allegedly showed up at Sherry's work, angry, upset, and ready to get even. She told Sherry that she and John had been intimate. Remember, she allegedly made that comment, if I can't have John, no one will. Distraught, Sherry came home from work and confronted John, who confessed to having had sex with Stephanie after they were engaged. John promised to not have any contact with Stephanie, and the couple moved forward in their relationship, marrying in November of 1985. But Stephanie wasn't ready to move on, not by a long shot. Stephanie's roommate would testify that after she learned about the engagement, she'd gone into his room, woken him up late at night, she was looking for comfort. She would explain that John had broken up with her and was going to marry someone else. She revealed that she'd gone to his fiancé's work and confronted her, lamenting that she couldn't date because she was picky and only wanted men who were tall and athletic like John. Stephanie wasn't working on the day that Sherry was murdered. Less than two weeks after Sherry's murder, Stephanie Lazarus would report to the Santa Monica Police Department that her Smith & Wesson service weapon was stolen from the glove compartment of her car while it was parked in Santa Monica. The gun that she had reported as being stolen has never been found. Stephanie didn't contact John after Sherry's murder, but three years later in 1989, they met up in Hawaii. Apparently, they were both on vacation with other people. And they had sexual relations, but they never became involved in a relationship. Stephanie would be found guilty of first-degree murder. People of the state of California versus Stephanie Eileen Lazarus. Case number BA-357423. We, the jury, in the above-entitled action, find the defendant, Stephanie Eileen Lazarus, guilty of the crime of murder of Sherry Rasmussen in violation of Penal Code Section 187A, a felony, as charged in Count 1 of the information. We further find the murder was of the first degree. Sherry's former husband, John Rutten, gave an impact statement before Stephanie's sentencing. Yeah, I'm John Rutten. There are really no words that can describe the loss of Sherry and the whole of, it, of this experience, so it makes no sense to talk very long. It suffices to say that the Rasmussen family my family and Stephanie's family have been thrust into a bizarre world of disbelief and indescribable sadness. 
Sherry Rasmussen had a profound impact on so many people, and I was proud that she agreed to be my wife. It was impossible not to notice Sherry when she entered a room. To me, her physical presence was startling. I can clearly remember the first moment I laid eyes on her. Sherry Rasmussen was a physical presence, and my heart still races when I look at pictures of her. But Sherry was extraordinary, more for who she was than the way she looked. She was a hard worker, a consummate professional, a leader, a diplomat, forgiving, tough, and a kid at heart. Sherry's loss, the way she died, and the trial 25 years after her death has had a profound impact on many, many others. The effects are broad and span a generation, creating pain for those whose lives should have never been touched by this tragic event. Again, words are feeble tools for describing these impacts, but there are so many moments and so very many tears. And the fact that Sherry's death occurred because she met and married me brings me to my knees. Stephanie Lazarus was sentenced to 27 years to life in 2009, long awaited justice for Sherry and her family. Despite being sentenced to 27 years, the family found out that Stephanie Lazarus is coming up for parole in November of 2023. I guess with the parole hearing coming up is Stephanie had 23 years of her, of her life free after she killed my sister. And then she serves 10, 12, 13 years and then potentially has an opportunity to continue to live her life. I mean, it's really not fair. I mean, my sister was just starting to embark on, you know, with her marriage. She never, she was still early in her in her professional career. She had so much more that she could have contributed. We don't know how far she, what she, what she could have done. And certainly, you know, she didn't have the opportunity to have kids. Stephanie had, uh, was able to adopt a daughter. You know, the different stages of life she eliminated and took away from Sherry, but also for the rest of us to share with her as she goes to the stages of life. She took that from my parents. And my, in all honesty, I believe that my parents' life was cut short as a result of it. Because um, their family lived into, into their 90s, and both of my parents died in their 80s. The Murder Chronicles is a pie-in-the-sky production recorded live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We are produced by Brandon Morgan and myself, music by Soundstripe. For Pie in the Sky Media, I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Thanks for listening. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply